hope I don't offend too many, but, but I, as I as started out the conversation, I desperately, construction industry is a massive part of the solution because you are so large, you have such huge missions, but you also have such long-term buildings. So you are really an important um, sector to, to convert and to get engaged with. Hello everyone and welcome to FutureX, a podcast by Martin Hearn, Event Director, FutureBuild and co-host Dr Oliver Jones, Research Director, Rider Architecture. FutureX will bring together some of the brightest minds and some of the most disruptive thinkers and innovators to transform the construction industry and build a FutureX community of like-minded people that can begin to make a real change. We really hope you enjoy the series. Welcome to Future X. I'm Martin Hearn, Event Director at FutureBuild, and once again, very pleased to be joined by my co-host, Dr. Oliver Jones at Rider Architecture. Now, Oliver, you've thrown a bit of a curveball this week with our guest. Do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction? I certainly have. Um, I've spoke to you a lot about mycelium and uh, pre-fungus and how it's going to change the world of construction, but we're going to, we're going to step further this week. This is uh, looking at the world of marine biology. Uh, microalgae. Um, we've got guests booked up in future episodes coming to talk to us about mycelium, but today we're having Peter Ralph, Professor Peter Ralph, Executive Director of the Climate Change Cluster at the Faculty of Science, University of Technology, Sydney. And Peter's one of those guys that I hunted down over the lockdown period and had some serious chats over quite a few virtual beers um, discussing what's next in the sort of world of marine biology, some of the amazing work that he's, he's doing, um, creating bioreactors to clean the air, and just how we could maybe use this in the construction sector. Now, I must say, this is way out there. You know, in, in my sort of uh, day-to-day run in a future build, we don't really cover algae that much or, um, or marine biology. So it, it's all, all new to me, but uh, it, it's a fascinating industry. I think fundamentally, when I first spoke to Peter about this, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, go again. All right, yeah. Just recap, tell me exactly what you just said but in plain English, because it was it was such an unusual concept. In reality, it's quite a simple concept. You pump dirty air through big tanks of algae, thousands of different types of algae. These guys have got this big lab called the Deep Green Biotech Hub, and they select which type of algae is most appropriate to create really high-value um, biochemicals from the algae that grows off the dirty air, eating carbon, eating volatile organic compounds. Peter's way more articulate uh, describing the process and telling us all about it, so I'm really excited to have him on. The, the big thing for me is some of the, some of the massive applications that you can make. Mm-hmm. This algae is not just uh, a really sort of simple biomass that you might burn or use as fertilizer. It's got some serious applications. Now, I've been doing my research here, so you know I'm gonna hit you with a stat here. There's over 300,000 species of algae, and this is from Peter's video on his website. Uh, they can make almost any product. So they're focusing in sort of three areas. They're looking in the industrial applications for this, and they're looking at that sort of agriculture, industrial and medical. And that's a 350 billion industry. So it's insane. The, the money, the money that's around in, in, in those industries. Um, and one of the things I'm really looking forward to asking Peter is what what's happened with the construction industry, mate? What hmm. you know, and, and you, between you and I, 
Peter's initial response was, and obviously all of our listeners, um, Peter's initial response was, the, it's a really hard industry to read. It's a really hard industry to get into. Um, but the opportunities are immense mm -hmm. for the construction sector. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to ask him about some of the stuff they do with their SMEs and startups. They do a huge amount with climate entrepreneurs um, because, you know, looking at, you know, a little bit in more in depth at the use of algae, some of the products they're producing can really reduce those CO2 emissions. They can, you know, process wastewater um, and produce planet friendly food and products. So I've seen that they've come through with a, a low CO2 beer as well in a brewing process. Which... Oh, absolutely. I mean, You'd expect it from the guys in Oz, wouldn't you? But they uh, they're focused on collabs and partnerships with with breweries as a as a number one. Uh, but in all seriousness, there is a lot of emissions that come off the, the brewing process and other manufacturing processes. I think the the key takeaway for me before we even get into speaking to Peter with this is Peter's the guy who changed my view on carbon. You know, he he up until that point, everything and everything still is about decarbonizing. I think we've fundamentally got that wrong. I think, of course, we need to achieve our climate goals, but we need to do it not by removing and decarbonizing absolutely everything. We need to do it by looking at carbon as a really, uh, really valuable resource that we can use. And I, you know, part of my thinking recently is that are we going down slightly the wrong tack here? Are we trying to cut carbon out entirely? When in reality, we're having exactly the same conversation alongside it around the circular economy and mm. how to reuse all of our waste streams and our waste products. Carbon's an insanely valuable product. So, you know, carbon capture and doing something intelligent with carbon, I think, is the way forward. And, and Peter's at the forefront of that. Brilliant. Well, also another first for us, we've got our first international guest. So he's dialing straight in from Australia. So should we get Peter on board? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Hi, Peter. Absolutely fantastic to have you as a guest on the FutureX podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. Looking forward to it. The, it's been a while since we spoke. Um, what's happened since? Uh, you know, we've had new arrivals in the family, but I'm really glad to welcome you here on a, on a, on your evening and our morning. Uh, tell us a bit about where you're joining us from, Peter. So I'm joining you from Sydney. So downtown Sydney, we've just finished all the floods. We've had our second day of sunlight in probably probably two or three weeks we've had some pretty crazy weather here so um yeah we're we're, we're just heading into winter oh mate so well from i'm joining you from a very sunny newcastle as always <laughs> the well one of the things we always ask our guests just to give the audience a bit of a background is to tell us a little bit about yourself tell us a little bit about your journey you know how did you get to where you are now what did you study what uh, what, what, what enthused you at that early age? So what, where I started was I started environmental sciences was my undergraduate degree. And I kind of looked around for, for work for a while, couldn't find work. I dabbled in hospitals. I worked in all kinds of different areas. Went back and did a PhD. And I did a PhD in, in photosynthesis of seagrasses, so, so plants that live in the coastal ocean. And that kind of started me down the path of learning what humankind was destroying our marine environment. And I moved from seagrasses into coral bleaching, from coral bleaching into polar algae. So I moved around for about 10 or so years looking at different ecosystems that were damaged. Then about 10 years ago, 
we had a new dean in the faculty of science and he said, oh, so Peter, what do you do? And I said, I do photosynthesis of aquatic plant systems. He said, what do you reckon about biofuels? And I said, I reckon it's a crop. And he goes, oh, well, you're exactly the person that should fix this because you've got opinions about it. You seem to understand photosynthesis. So why don't you do something about it? Interesting, interesting problem, yeah? doesn't mean that, that I've solved biofuels, but I certainly, it, it channeled me down that path. And it turned me from being, when I give public lectures in my former times, I was Dr. Dent. I was telling everyone how ecosystems were being damaged and destroyed by humankind. I pivoted that because people at the end of the, the seminar would say, so what do we do? You know, I'd say, oh, get an electric vehicle, eat less meat. And... It wasn't enough traction. So I thought, oh, why don't I move my research program to actually come out with solutions? And so about eight years ago, uh, we started down the path of using photosynthesis and algae to fix the planet and haven't looked back since. Amazing. That, and, and that's our jumping off point. So for the audience, and again, probably for us guys, just to, to get our heads around it, tell us exactly why algae is important and give us a sort of a brief process history of, of what you guys do. Okay, so algae is well, every second breath of oxygen that we take every day that we live has come, every second breath has come from algae. Every other breath has come from the forests, the terrestrial forests. So there's massive amounts of oxygen that algae makes. Now algae can be two types. They can be seaweeds that we see on the seashore, which are little plants that flap around in the water, that's a seaweed or a macroalgae. And the other type of algae is, is single-celled, and that you can't see with the naked eye, you have to look at it under a microscope. So two types of algae, three to 400,000 different species. We currently exploit about 10. Um, and the, the genetics and the biochemistry of microalgae is massively diverse. They make all these really cool compounds the, to defend themselves against predators, to attract other algal cells, to attract bacteria. So the biochemistry is massive, and we can use that biochemistry to make stuff. So we can make sugar, we can take sugars out of the algae, we can take oil out of the algae, we can take protein out of the algae. So I can convert an algae into food, feed, pigments, paints, glues, um, you name it. There's, there's endless potential for products to be taken from both seaweed and microalgae. It feels like we're at the sort of dawn of this. I mean, you guys have been doing it for quite some time, but we're at the dawn of this untapped potential in the biotech space. Um, in that, you know, there's, we're, we're having exactly the same conversations around mycelium and the fact that we just don't understand. We don't understand 99% of the opportunities of what it can do. I feel exactly the same about your, the way you're telling me about microalgae is, you know, we were just scratching the surface of what's possible, but the initial findings are pretty, pretty impressive. You're right, because I think what we've got to set our minds to is we've got to, we've, we've come through the industrial revolution. We've used hard chemistry to crack a molecule to turn it into something that we need. Now we've got the opportunity to let biology do the hard work. Whether or not it's mycelium, mycelium, you know, they make some pretty amazing compounds as well. You've got the, the cell doing the cellular biochemistry 
making the products for you. So if you can tweak the, the, the biochemistry or you can change the genetics of it, you can let the cell do all the hardcore chemistry for you and just take your products from the cells. So I think this is the change that we've got to see. The biology is doing the hard chemistry now, whereas before we had to do it, and we made a lot of pollution along the way creating these compounds. If we let the cells do it, provided we use all the cellular biomass, we haven't got any pollution left. Peter, I think, you know, what stands out for me there is you described, you know, you can make sugars, paints, chemicals, you know, these are traditional industries that are so damaging to the environment, you know, what's holding back doing this via algae then? Scale. It's just the scale. The biochemistry is there, the, the, the knowledge and the techniques are there. We can do these processes really, really efficiently and with limited contaminants, pollutants, the, the, the chemistry can be very green chemistry. The only problem is, is we're up against industries that have been around for 50 years, 100 years. They've used, and okay, this is where we, we get into the fossil carbons. So the petrochemical industry makes most of the paints, makes most of the plastics. Mm. That industry has been around for 100 plus years. The plastics are essentially a waste product. So they're coming for a cheap product. We, we're competing with commodities. So as soon as we can get to scale, we can make these products. It's not a technical limitation, it's just a cost. And I think with the shift in community recognition of climate change and the want to decarbonise, we're going to see a shift. People will pay a premium for a bioplastic. Um, they'll pay 10% more for a bioplastic. If we can get our economics and scale-based production working, society will want these products immediately. If we can't get the prices right, we've got to wait for government to establish procurement, um, preferential procurement, where they encourage industry to, to select these smaller scale productions. So yeah, it's production scale. And I guess just to break it down for the audience, and Peter, feel free to tell me that that's absolute nonsense. That's not the way this works. But to break it down visually, it's you're taking a load of dirty air you take an air that's full of carbon, you take an air that's full of VOCs, you, you know, real high emission, nasty stuff. You're pumping it into a big vat that's full of liquid water. And as long as you've got the right temperature and the right lighting situations, you can then grow algae. And the algae feeds on all of the nasties, all of the carbon, all of the VOCs. And in doing so, multiplies and creates that high-value biomass that you guys then turn into some of these exceptional products. Yep, 90% right. So <laughs> let's let's pick up on the VOCs. And I'll take, that, I'll take that all day long, I'll take 90%. <laughs> 90% is good. So, so the VOCs, and we also have to stick nitrogen, phosphorus in. So, so everything is there. So take a flue gas that's got contaminants, that's got sulfur, it's got all kinds of other things in it. Most of those will be taken up by the algae. Some of them may be toxins, they may damage the algae, but they still go into the biomass. Now, if you've got a flue gas from an, an engine or an industrial process that is not food grade, you sure won't be making an algal-based food, but you can make a plastic, you can make a fibre, you can make any product with 
those contaminants that are in the biomass. Um, so, so the contaminants, provided you're not having it going into and wall panels. Let's why why can't we have you know contaminants that are being stuck in a wall panel? Um, the carbon's in the wall panel. It's in a wall panel for 50 years. That's a good sink to get rid of those wastes. The other thing that you you went through water, CO2, light. You also have to have nitrogen and phosphorus. So we've got to have some basic nutrients to grow it. And hopefully, in our talk this evening, we'll, we'll circle back to the circular economy and we'll talk about using sewage or food waste as that additional sources of nitrogen and phosphorus. That's a really cool uh, way that we can use waste to make products in the future. But yeah, you're essentially right. CO2 and VOCs can go into the algae, but some of the VOCs may be damaging to the algae. And this, uh, just picking up on the point you made before, Peter, which I think is it's incredibly critical. This this isn't a pipe dream. You've done this. This has been rolled out. This is happening. The only block to realising um, a cleaner, greener economy is just scale and funding of this technology, which Absolutely. is incredible. You know, I mean, our government themselves said that science will lead the way with regards to to climate change and addressing climate change and meeting our 2030 targets. And we're investing billions in things that might be taken as in another direction for solutions. And we've got a solution with you guys and with the work that you're doing. It exists. Uh, it, we just need to roll it out at scale. Yeah, it's, it's, it is really, and this is part of the thing that I think is really important to get the story out. Um, back here in Australia in 2019, we had um, the student school strike. I'm sure you had it in the UK yeah. as well. That was devastating for me to, to, to see all of these scared 16-year-old school kids going, oh, my God, the future is so bleak. Climate change is... We have no future. And the problem was that we're not getting the stories out. Yes, we need a bit more R&D. Yes, we need to get to scale. But essentially, the, the technology is here, and, and school kids and the general public need to realise that the scientists are getting damn close to solving the problem. What we're going to do is we've got to work with the big industries that get the big impact. And guess what? Construction is one of them. Um, you guys have got a huge carbon footprint attributed to your practice, uh, the inverted carbon from a lot of your products, a lot of the production carbon. Um, you guys can make a big difference. And I think the really exciting thing for me looking for opportunities with, with construction is you can also stick the carbon away for a long time. You've got buildings that, you know, if we don't knock them down, they're there for 50 years. So that means that carbon's out of the atmosphere for 50 years. The longer uh, we can have products stuck in buildings, we don't have to stick it in the ground. Who wants to, to capture carbon at a huge cost and then just stick it in the ground and hope it doesn't come back into the atmosphere? I'd much prefer to catch that carbon, stick it into an algal biomass, turn that algal biomass into carpet, turn it into a wall panel, turn it into a foam to be used for insulation. And every year that that product's in a building and it's not thrown into um, landfill, that product is is keeping the carbon out of the atmosphere. That's an awesome way to solve the problem of the planet. 
and we, we talked about this very briefly, but yeah, I think you totally credit you, Peter, with changing my views on, on carbon, really. You know, after the first, the first time we spoke during lockdown, I really started to question decarbonization in, 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 and actually, are we focusing on maybe the wrong activity, which is removing carbon from the chain, when actually there's a massive opportunity here, given everything you've talked about with the circular economy and um, reusing waste from supply chains. Carbon's insanely valuable to us. So let's just use it way more intelligently. Um, and, and given the fact that we're in the built environment, we've got an unbelievable opportunity to be able to influence how we could capture carbon through our buildings and through our infrastructure and the design of our, design of our environment. Yeah. Look, I, I, I hate to, um, to, to go against the flow. Decarbonisation is a really critical path, and I think the, the governments around the globe have to focus on that. But maybe a slight nuance to the word might be defossilisation. So instead of us taking carbon out of the equation, it's taking fossilised carbon out of the equation and just stripping atmospheric carbon, sticking into every single product we can think that it's a sink, and this is new economies, and this is exciting new economies. And going back to, to Martin's earlier point, it's letting the, the, the biochemistry of the cells do all the hard chemistry for us. So it's, it's a really exciting new frontier, and we shouldn't see carbon as the enemy. We should see carbon as the glue that sticks our nitrogen phosphorus together to make a polymer, to make an oil, to make a product for society. And the products that stay out of circulation the longest are the most valuable to us. That's where we really need to go. Peter, I've, I was reading on, on your website about the Green Light Accelerator program that, that you have, and it's just fascinating to see, you know, Oliver said um, a little while ago that, you know, this is at a really early stage of development and, you know, you've got some really interesting entrepreneurs now um, and innovators coming through and, and really driving that new innovation. Can you tell us about some of the stuff that's come out of that program? So Greenlight's a really exciting uh, accelerated program. So what we do is we take entrepreneurs that have got an early idea they, we, we bring them inside the university, we give them access to our technical experts, we workshop with them to teach them and to hone their, 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 their technology. If there's a few rough edges, we fix it up. And we get them moving towards commercialization. So it's a great way to fast track it. Now, the interesting thing, as I started out talking, there's two types of algae. There's seaweeds and there's microalgae. We've run several dozen groups through the, the accelerator, the vast majority are seaweed um, startups. And it's, whether or not that's something uniquely about Australia, we've got much greater interest in seaweed than microalgae. Now, it's, I see it as having fewer, fewer products that we can turn into um, useful things in society. But certainly the Australian entrepreneurial startups are absolutely focused on macroalgae. And that's a real big growth area across Australia. You tell us a bit about some of the big products that are coming out of this, Peter. You mentioned, uh, unbelievably, aviation biofuel. Yeah. 
So one of the it, one of the the big activities in Australia now is is a seaweed called asparagopsis. So this is the seaweed that is used to feed to cows that reduces the methane emission. There's probably five or six startups around Australia. There's lots of um, new leases. There's lots of growth in in growing asparagopsis as a as a byproduct uh, for for um, methane reduction. Um, we work with a number of Southeast Asian growers to grow different seaweeds to make bioplastics. So we're working in the Philippines to help seaweed farmers. So at the moment, seaweed farmers grow the seaweed and they sell it into the carrageenan market for, for food production. What we're doing is we're trying to give them a second market so that, that if the, the price that they're getting for carrageenan is low, they can sell it to a plastic producer. And these, these communities throughout the Philippines will be able to make base-level bioplastic uh, pellets and sell it to the highest market. So there's a whole range of ways that we can use um, our engagement with different startup groups to give them, to empower them, especially in Southeast Asia. And in our earlier conversations, it was a, it was, there was a lot of similarities with some of the other accelerators and, and advanced material startups that we've been working with in that a lot of them come from outside of the construction sector. In fact, nearly all of them come from outside of the construction sector. They're all physicists or biologists or chemists. Um, but they were very tentative and also reticent to get involved in the construction sector because it's a really hard sector to read. It's kind of siloed. It's kind of slow. It's, you know, I mean, tell us a bit about your experience with trying to get into the sector or how it works? What my past engagement has been, has been, I suppose I've, I've not had products that I've been talking to the industry. I've been talking to the industry about our facades and different ways of having a building operationalised using algal-based technology. And I think I've learnt the hard way, the slow way, that because a lot of owners of buildings aren't necessarily the builders of buildings. And to, it's a probably, I think, a faster way to get traction to appeal to the builders of the building to have a higher carbon storage in their building. And that's a product that can be sold as a building. And it's not the ongoing maintenance of algal panels that, that the tenant of the building has to maintain. So I think in my early activities with the construction industry, I've mixed up the built structure from the owned structure. And I'm a slow learner. I'm getting to the point. I now know that I need to be talking about products. And if I can talk about the embodied carbon footprint of a product that is carbon negative, then I think the construction industry could be interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I, I don't know, I, I certainly wouldn't call you a slow learner, Peter. I think, given, given the amount that's been achieved to date, I think we're, you might just be the saviour of the construction industry here, to be quite frank. The, in terms of the products and the things that we're talking about being developed, you know, we've had some fascinating conversations. Bioplastics is, is a big one. Um, you know, hard plastics, soft plastics, flexible plastics. Um, are there any other sort of applications for products that are being explored at the minute? And also, probably one of the key things to touch on here is, are, 
are these plastic products the same? You know, are they, are they, you know is there a myth, a myth in people's minds that they may be slightly less durable or they, you know, they're, they're not going to be as robust as a petrochemical plastic? You know, can you tell us a bit about that? So, so I think the, the breadth of products is, is immense and working out which ones to work into which building settings is, is going to be, I think, an exciting opportunity. Um, the, let's start with the breadth of the products and then we'll move to the biodegradability or the, the properties of the product. So the breadth of products that in my mind that can go into, into the construction industry, um, wall panels. So you can have wall panels where you've got bioplastics in those wall panels. These will not be biodegradable. These are permanent plastics. You can think about the acoustic properties. You can think about the fire resistance properties. You can think about the embodied carbon in that. The Now, this is not the same plastic. So then you could go to your floor tiles, your, your carpet. You could have the fibres of your, 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 your carpet being a bioplastic, you could have the rubberized section below, below it as a different type of bioplastic. The, um, the, the hydrogels, there's a, a lot of interesting hydrogels. Now, I spoke mostly about microalgae. The hydrogels come from, from the seaweed. So these are uh, water-absorbing, moisture-absorbing gels. Essentially, it's, it's agar and jelly. And they're putting these into wall panels for moisture removal and moisture control. Um, foams, foams. We we made our first. You know, there's there's groups around the world that have been making foams, owl foams, for a couple of years now, and they're putting them into shoes and yoga mats. We made our first foam about a week or two ago. Really proud of it, and I think there's some great opportunities for making foams uh, for the construction industry because expandable foam. You know, you've got to fill the gaps, you've got to stick this carbon somewhere. So all of these types of products are technically out there now. Are they at scale? No. Are they cost competitive? No. Um, going back to your question of, of properties, one of the really important things that I've learned over the years talking to end users of plastics is... We've had the luxury over the last 50, 70 years of being able to dial up properties into our petrochemical plastics. Now everyone goes, oh, I want it to be UV stable. I want it to be oxygen non-permeable. I want it to be waterproof. I want it to be this. I want it to be that. Every time you specify a new property, you may be asking for a new plastic. So... That means that we're going to get into quite complex chemistry and that plastic is not going to be as recyclable because it's going to be a combination of three or four different um, added compounds. So the simpler we can make our plastics, the more recyclable we're going to be. Um, and I think the, the closer we get to a, a petrochemical plastic, the, the more complex the car the, the chemistry we're going to have to perform on it so i hope there's a, a middle ground that we can get to where we accept a simpler property and don't demand identical properties to petrochemicals because as a waste product from the petroleum industry they put a lot of their costs 
into getting all those extra properties. Yeah. And they, let, let's hang on the circular economy side of things for a moment, because I think it's so important. And it's definitely something, you know, we've we've chewed the fat on a few times now in terms of, well, how, how can this really sort of start to be implemented? If you look 10, 15 years down the line for the construction sector, you know, I, I, I threw the challenge out to you a while ago. Could you not just include this in a building as a as a build as a bioreactor for a building? And, and you rightly said, well, actually, we've already done it in a microbrewery. Um, and I said, well, what would happen if we hook it up to the mechanical heat and ventilation? And you know, the, the indoor air quality and external air quality are such huge drivers from building owners and occupants now that you're almost seeing a business model and some leverage coming in there that you could be creating a really high value product and biomass if you had the business ecosystem around it in all of our buildings all of the time and feeding and fueling this this, this, this massive potentially massive industry yeah absolutely so so the potential to use co2 from a building is 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 immense the potential to use CO2 and nutrients or grey water from a building makes it even more circular. So these are the kind of things that I think governments currently are a little bit tentative about, but the thing is we need to, to find opportunities to force the circularity to move forward because we're not talking about turning sewage into food. We're talking about turning sewage into wall panels. Mm. Now, um, in Australia, we struggle a little bit with recycled water. In Europe, you guys are drinking recycled water all the time. So there is no bacteria, there is no evil compounds, there is no smell to the products that we can make with using waste and atmospheric CO2 to make these construction products. So this is real circularity and this is the next step. So in some ways, what we're talking about tonight is... Uh, what I what's technically possible now, what isn't technically possible now is I'm not seeing circularity. I'm not seeing two industries sitting together on adjacent sites. One shares its CO2, the other one shares the, the, the food waste or the, the, the agricultural waste or the human waste. So we're not seeing opportunities where that's happening and that's where we need to get some pressure to move forward because in the next couple of years, Circularity needs to be demonstrated and circularity needs to be accepted by industry that they can share their waste. They don't have to own their waste and make money out of their waste. They need to understand how they can be adjacent to a user of the waste and both both companies can make money out of it. That's, that's a struggle. Yeah, the irony of this is, you know, sitting here at home in Newcastle, that the, there's an area of Newcastle up on the river that, is heralded as one of the sort of cradles of the industrial revolution and it only happened that way because a glass factory located next to a lead works located next to xy businesses because they could use one another's waste processes you know there was a valuable waste product coming out of a factory so somebody built another factory next to it to use that the waste wasn't traveling thousands of miles or hundreds of miles to the next location it was going next door to create a whole new product and it feels like we're st starting to come back round to just understanding the real value and um, how, how much we can accelerate our progress if we leverage that kind of circular behavior. And it's definitely something that we've seen with 
um, the, the mycelium projects that we're working on, you know, waste mapping of a region um, and looking at where those waste streams are and, and what, what waste streams are specific to a region. Is, that's bread and butter for the biotech space, you know. It's like, well, who's producing what waste and how can we use that in a new way with a, a new strain of mycelium or a new microalgae um, exactly. to, to, to feed that into our, pro, our, our program to scale it much quicker? Yep. Look, that's exactly what, what I, I attributed to governments, but the thing is industry associations could do exactly the same thing. It's a matter of coordinating the the industrial uh, interest in sharing waste because we cannot uh, be making we, we the scale for the construction industry we can't have a CO2 emitter in one end of the country and a nutrient source at the other and we're freighting nitrogen and phosphorus down to this this biomass production facility next to a CO2 emitter. We've got to get the two of them to be, to be adjacent. So this is the only way that we're going to have a sustainable, uh, let alone economically sustainable solution. We have to have these two um, sources and sinks sharing. Yeah. I guess as a, as a massive shout out and call to action to the UK government and UK industry, Martin's sick of hearing about this, to be honest. I, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a keen fly fisherman. Um, and we have an unbelievable issue here in the UK around uh, waste sewage discharges from our water companies into our rivers. Not one of our rivers nationally is pollution free. Um, and it's almost entirely attributable to over 3 million sewage unplanned sewage discharges from our water companies and our utilities companies. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that we've spoke about this and I was super excited about it and it ties into what we're talking about around reusing waste. You guys are, are developing a way to use raw sewage from that process in, in the work that you're doing, aren't you? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because that's a silver bullet for me. You know, the government isn't, it's not moving on this. We're presenting it with a clear solution. Utilities companies are just hand over fist making profit and polluting all of our rivers. Tell us about what the opportunities are with, with microalgae. Well, it was interesting, um, end of last year, there was a water utilities um, innovation festival, uh, Northumbria uh, Water Utility and Sydney Water joined together. And I pitched a, a project that our research group's doing called Green Genie. And this, this technology is a containerized, uh, algal-based carbon stripping system but it, can, it needs to be fed with a nutrient source. And so the application for bringing it to water utilities was a water polishing. Now, it's not going to, you're not going to feed it with raw sewage. It's going to have to be filtered. And the real um, strength of this system is for polishing, for getting rid of the last bits of phosphorus and nitrogen that, you know, is really, really expensive for the water utility to get rid of. You run that through this 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 containerized system that we've developed, and that's a way of polishing the water. So, these are this this was a technology that we won a, an award through through a um, pitch fest, and we're developing it further at the moment. We'll we'll be coming back to market probably at the end of the year uh, to talk to people about it because it's going to be an important way for cleaning up. Uh, polishing wastewater, 
but also capturing CO two. Yeah. It sounds like well, it sounds like you've got the answer to to us having clean rivers again, Peter. And, yeah, uh, definitely. And and fingers crossed, <laughs> it means that by the end of this year, Northumbria Water will have nothing but pure water to pump out of their facilities. Um, so that's a that's something to look forward to. So Oliver, I'm really intrigued about how you and Peter actually connected, and you know what are Rider Architecture doing in the you know in this biospace? I I think um, cheers, Martin. I, I stalked Peter online <laughs> and just said, look, mate, what I, I think it was it was Young Henry's, wasn't it, Peter? The the, the project that yeah. we haven't actually spoke about. So Peter can maybe give us a potted history of that in a second of what they've done at Young Henry's Brewery. Um, but I'd seen that they'd applied this fantastic technology that was also, you know, typically in an architect's mind, aesthetically quite exciting. You know, it's these huge big baths of lime, neon green liquid um, that were just creating a really valuable thing with uh, literally out of nothing, literally out of the air and, and nitrogen and phosphates, as I now know, Peter, so thank you. Um, the... And, and that really got me thinking about how can we use this and how can we better utilize this within our built environment? And for me, the, the conversations I've had with Peter since have been, have been both thoroughly enlightening, but also massively inspiring in terms of a future direction for the built environment. You know, now when you have conversations with people and naysayers around science and technology and innovation, leading the way for change in um, addressing the climate emergency and in what we're doing in the built environment, my answer typically yeah, particularly when referencing the biotech space, particularly around mycelium, particularly around microalgae and the processes and the products and the research going on there, is we've got the answers, we've got the technology. Uh, we just need to scale this, we need to back it, we need to wholeheartedly understand it, and we need to get behind it as, as a community, but also as a profession and, uh, and, and, and a sector. I think the good news is, you know, sorry, Peter, we, we, we're seeing it in the mycelium world at the moment. You talked about scale quite a lot, you know, and, and those mycelium insulation manufacturers now can almost produce at the levels of some of the PIR, ins, you know, in, insulation manufacturers. So we're seeing that scale and it become a tangible solution. It, it'd be interesting to see what's that first, you know, sort of algae bio product that, that makes that, that leap really in the construction industry. That's going to be the interesting one in the construction industry because I think we're, we're going to see it, we've already seen it in the, the, the food and beverage, we've seen it um, in, in a range of the industries, but I think the construction industry is, is still waiting and because it's so massive, um, it's, go, it's going to be a really big impact on the global carbon um, balance sheet. But I just wanted to go back to, to when Oliver and I first met and I, I wanted, he did find me and, and it was great the way that he, he reached out. But part of my interest in wanting to talk to architects is because I like talking to the future builders. Now, I'm not saying future builders as in construction building, but there's designers, there's architects, there's the people that have to conceptualise what five years into the future will look like. And me as a scientist, I'm pretty much here in the here and now. And engineers are also very, very here and now. But I started out back in the probably eight to 10 years ago, 
the first groups of people that as, as a site as I engaged with was interior designers and architects because their, their remit to me as a scientist is to create a future for us and we will uh, we, we look at those futures in the buildings that are created. And so I needed to work with those creatives to, to, to put the science into their visions of the future so that we could see the future through their buildings. And so that, I was already preconditioned to wanting to talk to architects but the important thing is is their connection to the, the, the nuts and bolts of the construction industry. That's that's where the real carbon is going to be stored. But the creative side of it, the architects will be looking for beautiful luminescent green bags of value. <laughs> and um, yeah, so Young Henry's was a great way to sell that story and. They're an inner city brewery. They've got exactly the same mission that we have. They want to be sustainable. They want to show how we can fix the planet. And doing it with beers, you, you kind of, you can't go wrong. So we built the bags. Um, the, the, the opportunities that Young Henry's has brought to algae has been unbelievable. And they will continue to, to generate immense global interest. Um, in this space. And, and we can effectively say that beer will save the world. In that situation, yes. So they're, 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 gonna, they're capturing all their carbon, or they have the capacity to capture their carbon and make stuff out of it. So how awesome is that? The, uh, interestingly, I was really interested in your comments there, Peter, about how we address and get the uptake in the construction sector. and. It's always, when I've described innovation in the construction sector, we've got some advanced material startups who are doing some fantastic stuff with waste plastics and waste glass and creating uh, carbon negative blocks and carbon neutral blocks and uh, insulation that's incredibly high performing and, and non-combustible. That's familiar. People get that. It's a block, it's a brick, it's a board. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a really familiar, tangible thing for our industry. And also, we've got the skills to install it. That's another huge part of this puzzle. Skills, training, upskilling. Um, if you go to the other end of that spectrum, which is often, and this spectrum sort of come out of a lot of conversations. The other end of that spectrum is mycelium and, and, and the microalgae work that you guys are doing. When you first start talking to people about growing building components or harvesting high-value biomass from our air, people's heads tend to explode a little bit and say, well, oh, that's something really difficult for me to sort of understand in our current uh, ecosystem. One of the big things that I think mycelium is probably getting right and definitely is on the cards for microalgae is just to take that incredibly high-end um, process and create something very familiar, like a brick, like a board, like a panel. Um, and, and that goes back to where we started in this conversation today which is products and, and the value of those things the, the, to the construction industry. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that's the learnings that I've done, that, that we've got to um, place it in the right context so that, that it's not a foreign material. We just take out 
fossil-derived uh, carbon and replace it with algal-derived carbon. So the plastic uh, will have similar properties. It may not have five different properties, but it will certainly have a property or two properties that the fossil-derived carbon has. So you wouldn't know the difference with a, a algal-based wall panel. Um, it still would look like a fossil-derived one. It's just that it's, it's embedded carbon is negative as opposed to being positive. So, yeah, we need to just not scare the industry by having weird, trendy, green, glowing products, but just to have exactly the same slot in product. So the, 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 the builder that's putting that panel up doesn't have to worry about different properties. It's got exactly the same properties yeah. as the fossil derived one. So, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. I'm super happy and really excited to be on this journey with you guys, Peter, and and to continue the research that we've we've got we've got planned around what do we do next with the construction sector and and your hub and 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 the microalgae products. I think those panels, those bricks, those blocks, they're absolutely a way to start. I'm also incredibly excited about those big green bats of micro microalgae and bioreactors in buildings in the future. And that whole vision around a circular economy, around the waste products in our air to improve the quality of the air that we breathe, particularly as, as, as that's on the up, um, through our own fault, but also through other natural disasters that are increasing, like wildfires in our, you know, in our Vancouver region, our Vancouver office. Yes, very poor air quality due to traffic and, and vehicle pollution, but increasingly poor air quality due to uh, natural disasters as well. So... There's, I think there's a there's a really big part of the puzzle there. Um, we always wrap our podcasts up, you know, by asking our guests what their you know what would be your ideal vision of the future. You know, what does the future look like to you, or what do you want the future to look like? I I look forward to a an opportunity where the construction industry sees a massive opportunity to embed, to transition its products from being fossil-derived to nature-derived. And, and whether or not it's, it's, it's terrestrial cellulose or whether it's algal oils, I think there, we haven't spoken much about terrestrial tree-based products. And I'm, I'm, I don't think that we've thought about nature as the producer of our construction products. And when I say tree-based, I don't want you to think of just slabs of timber. I want the, the cellulose, the, the products can be taken out, and it's the products that we're putting into the building industry. So I would love five years down the track for the construction industry to have transitioned to bio-based products rather than fossil-derived products. So every single component of a building can be and should be transitioned away from fossil-derived products, and we come up with the equivalent. So the building still functions exactly the same. It still looks the same, but it's just now been defossilized as opposed to decarbonized. So I think that's the real challenge that... And I think a five-year time horizon for this industry is absolutely achievable. If we don't transition the construction industry in the next five years, 
the planet's got a problem because we're not going to be able to do it by transitioning, you know, people away from eating meat and moving them onto plant-based diets. We're not going to be able to have enough biofuels to fix aircraft. We're not going to have stationary energy for for batteries for cars and for domestic use. So construction industry is a massive opportunity and we've got a very short time window to find ways that you can economically swap to bio-based products. So that's my, my, my hope for the next five years. And I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to the opportunities to work with the industry to get those slot in, slot out products to, to help that transition. Amazing, amazing vision, Peter. And, and it sounds like we've already booked you in for a second episode on uh, terrestrial cellulose. So the, yeah. we'll, 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 we'll pick that one up at a whole other time. But um, thanks again for your time today, mate. And as always, it's, it's an absolute pleasure catching up. Yeah, thank you. No, look, thank, thanks for the opportunity. Oliver, it was absolutely fascinating talking to Peter. And I think he is a guest that really sums up Future X as well. You know, we want those disruptors, those innovators. And it's just amazing to really hear that, you know, these innovations that can solve pressing global issues exist. It's just amazing that they're not being brought through a scale. Oh, I totally agree, Martin. I think, you know, Peter's, Peter's been one of the guys who just he sets me alight every time we, we have a chat and the possibilities and, and the possibilities genuinely in this biotech space are, are endless. You know, I mean, as, as we mentioned, if, if these guys can produce aviation-grade biofuel right now, you know, where, where are the big players? Like, where are the big consortiums and the collectives getting together and just saying, look, we've got, we've got an obligation to do this. I mean, maybe this is a shout-out to, uh, to the Elon Musks of the world to say, look, we can, we can fuel your rockets and we can... <laughs> we can we don't need to fuel his cars, thankfully. Um, but, you know, you can make a massive difference to the, the global climate emergency and the drive towards that by really backing some of these technologies and these products and, and helping them scale. Uh, and that's, you know, the, the same shout-out goes to governments. Yeah. It's just what happens next and, and what do we do about it? And I think we'll, we'll absolutely be getting people back on to talk to them about uh, terrestrial cellulose and, and how you can use things harvested from trees and other plant life to, to support even more interesting projects and even more interesting bio-based materials. Um, and definitely engaging him in a conversation around what are the levers, what do we need to do uh, to scale this stuff quickly? Because as he, as he rightly pointed out, you know, we've got the opportunity to make a massive impact, but we've got about five years to do it. So that's here's plans. I know. I couldn't agree more. He was the perfect guest. He's the sort of pers- you know, perfect embodiment of Future X as well and what, and what we stand for and the people we're trying to profile. So, you know, my final shout out would be to everyone that's listening. If you enjoyed that, please share, subscribe, um, and we'll be back soon with another Future X. Thank you. Join our community to stay up to date with all things Future X. Visit futurebuild.co.uk to sign up. Please also like them and share them to help grow our community. You can subscribe to the podcasts within your favourite podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you'll be back again soon.